Well, as you can hear this morning, my uh, sore throat has almost taken my voice. So that's why Frank has been up here and not me uh, reading scripture. Now, if you're one of those who like a shorter sermon, if I don't make it through half of mine, then Frank is going to come up and relieve me. That'll make a longer sermon. You'll get two for one. But if you maybe are praying that my voice gives out for a shorter sermon and I make it at least half ways, then it might be a little shorter today. But you'll have to be patient with me and, of course, pray that uh, my voice does hold up and gets warmed up this morning. Today, I want to bring a special message to you entitled, Our Triune God, the doctrine of God's triunity, the doctrine of the Trinity. And it's not simply one doctrine among all the others in the Bible. It's fundamental to the Christian faith. We are Christians because we believe in a Trinitarian God. We are Christians Because a Trinitarian God is the God who saved us. There's no other religious belief system, no cult that believes in the triune God of Scripture. That's really what we're here for. We gather each Sunday to worship our triune God. The purpose of the church is to glorify God the Father through God the Son by the power of God the Holy Spirit. And if we leave out that doctrine, then we're no longer Christian. We have to believe it. We have to see it in scripture and we have to acknowledge that it's true and tell others even about it. One of our distinctives here at the church is a high view of God. If you look on our website, we have eight distinctives. If somebody's looking for a church, they can go there. They can look and see what we believe in a short summary. And so the doctrine of the Trinity is on the list. If we were to think about a high view of God and list out everything, the doctrine of Trinity is one of the most important distinguishing doctrines of our church, of the whole Christian church. Sometimes people ask the question, do Muslims and Christians worship the same God? Do Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Oneness Pentecostals worship the same God as we do? And the answer is no, because they all deny the Trinity. That's the clear biblical answer. No, because they deny the Trinity. None of these worship the same God as we do, because they worship a different God. This is the common view of church history that a true believer will believe in the doctrine of the Trinity and it's vital, it's essential. In fact, to be a member in the church, that's one of the essentials of the faith, believing in the God as he has revealed himself to us in scripture. Jonathan Edwards said, I think the doctrine of the Trinity to be the most highest and deepest of all divine mysteries. Charles Hodge, the great theologian of the 1800s, the Trinity is the fundamental doctrine of Christianity. Philip Hughes Again, the 1800s, the Trinity is the foundation of all man's knowledge of the being and mind of God. William G.T. Shedd, he said, the doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of theology. Christianity in the last analysis is Trinitarianism. Herman Bavink, Dutch theologian, he said, the doctrine of the Trinity is of incalculable importance for the Christian religion. The entire Christian belief system All of special revelation stands or falls with the confession of God's trinity. It's the core of the Christian faith, the root of all its dogmas, the basic content of the new covenant. And the doctrine of the trinity, he says, we feel the heartbeat, the heartbeat of God's entire revelation for the redemption of humanity. And then lastly, Martin Lloyd-Jones, more recent, he said the greatest The most vital, the most important aspect of the exalted doctrine of God. When you look at all the doctrine of God and things you can study about God, he says, the doctrine of the blessed Holy Trinity is the most important, most vital. So I want to bring you a message today. Just a brief overview, really, on the doctrine of the Trinity. 
And we're going to look at three aspects, three aspects of our triune God, three aspects that will help us to know him better, to thank him better, to honor him better, to glorify him aright, to worship him aright. Three aspects of the triune God, our triune God. Number one, our triune God in describing the Trinity. This is a doctrine. It is a theological doctrine that we have to study the Bible to see. And then we can put all the verses together and call it something like Trinity. The word Trinity is not found in the Bible. But don't let that throw you off when people say, Oh, Trinity is not in the Bible. Come on, Christians. You should deny that. There's a lot of words not in the Bible that we still use today to describe Christianity, to describe doctrine. The word, like I'm going to use in a moment, essence, is not used in the Bible. The concept is there, and Trinity is there as well. But the word Trinity comes from the Latin theologian Tertullian around the 200s AD. He said, here's a good word to summarize the teaching of the Bible, the concepts that are taught about God in Scripture. It summarizes the biblical teaching on the nature of God. The Old Testament speaks of God and the the plural as persons and the fullest revelation of that trinity we then see in the New Testament. So the first thing we have to do is establish a good definition. What's the definition? If it's vital, if it's important, how do we define the trinity? Here's a good definition. Within the one being that is God. There's one being that's God. Within that one being that is God, there eternally exists three co-equal, equal in authority, equal in all things, and co-eternal, always existing, co-eternal persons. One God, three co-eternal, co-equal persons, each of whom is fully God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I'll read it one more time if you're taking notes. Within the one being that is God, there eternally exists three co-equal and co-eternal persons, each of whom is fully God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So let's break it down. First of all, there is one God. The Bible's clear about this. The Old Testament establishes this over and over in the face of paganism and the face of all these gods out there. Again, in the New Testament, paganism runs rampant. There is one God. Deuteronomy 6.4. This begins the Shema, the thing that the Jewish person would have learned as a very young person, and they would have recited it. They would have mentioned it over and over. Deuteronomy 6.4 begins, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. It's this verse that they have so ingrained in them that when Jesus comes, they have a hard time believing what he says because they don't clearly understand who God is, but they do remember that God is one. Isaiah 45.5, I am Yahweh and there is no other, God says. Besides me, there is no God. So there are a lot of people that believe in other gods, but the Bible says there is only one God and is the God of Scripture, the Creator God. Secondly, the definition includes eternal, eternally existing, three co-equal, or we could say co-eternal as well, persons, each of whom is fully God. So we want to open this up. We want to talk about persons. Who are these persons? How are they described in Scripture? Now, when we think of person today, we think of human being. A person is a human being. So how can God be a person? But in ancient times, it wasn't thought of like that. The, the Latin word persona described something with intellect, emotion, will, self-consciousness, decision-making. A spiritual being is a person. 
because God is spirit and he is described as a person. So God has all of these attributes. Therefore, personhood is an attribute of God. It is his nature. God is one in essence, one in his divinity, but there are three persons in the Trinity. There's a difference though. If you look at the three persons, there's a difference. Then not only the name, but in what they do and how they relate to one another. Many, many verses we can look at on the Trinity in Scripture. I'll just select one from the Old Testament and two we'll look at in the New Testament. The New Testament reveals a lot more about the Trinity. As Christ comes, as the Son comes, He explains God. He exegetes God, John says. He, he explains Him in a more clear fashion. But it's still there in the Old Testament if you know where to look. So let's go back to Genesis 1, right at the beginning. God doesn't defend that he exists. The very first words of the Bible are God created. In the beginning, God created. And in that first chapter, God says something about himself, about his nature. And you've probably seen this before. Maybe you, you thought it was of the Trinity, maybe not. Genesis 1:26. Then God said, let us, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, so that they will have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So look at this statement here in 26. Let us. Who's the us? When I was first a believer, I read that and I thought, well, that must be angels. God and the angels. The problem is we're created in the image of God. The Bible never says we're created in the image of angels. We're created in the image and likeness of God. So God is speaking of himself here when he says, let us make man in our image. He's hinting at with that us and our, he's hinting at the, the plural there, the plurality, the fact that there are three persons in the Godhead right there in the beginning of the Bible. In Genesis 1. Now some will say, well, Elohim, the word used for God in Hebrew in Genesis, Elohim sometimes can, be, can mean multiple gods. That doesn't work real well for many reasons. One is God's not multiple gods. Yes, he uses Elohim to describe himself in the Old Testament, but that's more describing how powerful he is, how amazing he is. Let us, though, that is a clear pronoun of plurality. Let us. One God, three persons. Let's go now to the New Testament. A verse we looked at last week, briefly when I was talking about discipleship. A verse that applies today to baptisms that we're about to do. Matthew 28, 19. The Great Commission. Matthew 28, 19. This is our mission statement for the church. Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations. A disciple has been made. Now what? Baptize them in the name. How many names? The name. Singular. I know grammar is not all of our strong points, but that is a singular noun. One name. But then look what he does. In the name of whom? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three persons. Well, that's three names. Come on, Matthew. Come on, Jesus. No, it's, it's one God. The name of God. Three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Everybody recognizes that the name is singular there 
and that there are three persons mentioned. Now go with me to 2 Corinthians 13, 14. We're going to hop around the Bible a bit, do a bit of a, a Bible study as we go through some of these. So we're looking at three persons, co-eternal, co-equal. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. Here's the Trinity laid out in one verse. The word Trinity is not in the Bible. The, the non-Trinitarian will say, yeah, but here are the three persons in one verse. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the Son. And the love of God. That's the Father. And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So Paul is blessing them. He's praying for them. And he includes all three persons of the Trinity in one verse. So not only are they three persons, they're co-equal, co-eternal. But each person is described as God in Scripture. The Father, obviously, is described as God. Often when we think of God, we think of the Father, don't we? In Ephesians 4, 6, Paul gives a short list of doctrines. He says, these are the doctrines that unify the church. There's one baptism. There's one Lord. But in that list, he says, one God and Father. So there he's talking about the Father being God. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now later, Jesus is described as that as well. But this is talking about the Father. Scripture tells us that the Father has all the attributes, all the perfections of God. When we study the attributes of God, we often think of the Father. Even though they apply to all persons of the Godhead, we often just think of the Father for these attributes. So it is the Father that we see the perfections of God revealed to us in Scripture. But what about the Son? Well, the Son is said to be God in the Bible. We'll be in John a lot this morning, so if you want to just keep your finger in the Gospel of John, John 1.34, Jesus says, I myself, well, it's not Jesus. Let's just go over there and see who's talking here. This is John. John the Baptist, he says, And I myself have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. To be the Son of God means that he is God. Twice at Jesus' baptism, if you track the Gospels, two times a voice speaks from heaven. That's the Father. And he's speaking to Jesus, and he says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Colossians 1.15. Speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So that's how the Father can, can say to the Son, This is my beloved Son, because Jesus is fully God. Now let's go to John. I said stay in John, John 8.58. John 8.58. The famous I am statement. You need to remember this one. This is an important one. Maybe when the Jehovah's Witness comes knocking on your door, you can take them to John 8, 58. The I am. I am. Wording that, that Moses uses in 3.14. Listen to Exodus 3.14. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. That's what Yahweh says to Moses. Way back in Exodus. Moses says, who is this God that is sending me to these people? What should I call him? What should I give them as a name? Moses, here's who God is. I am who I am. And God said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So now John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. It really should be in all caps there because it's a quote from the Old Testament. Jesus says, I am. I am what? I am who? They know that the I am is all he needed to say to make a claim that he is God. They knew that because in the Hebrew, 
Yahweh, the covenant name of God, is closely related to the verb I am. It means to be, to exist. Hayah. That's what it means. Hayah is the Hebrew verb. It means to exist. God is always existing, has always existed, does always exist, will always exist. And that's where the name Yahweh comes from. So Jesus is claiming to be God. He's claiming to be Yahweh. He's the I am. He's eternal. He's always existing. John 17, 5. John 17, 5. Now, Father, he's praying to the Father in this high priestly prayer. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself. Who could get glory that is equal to the Father? Has to be God, the Son of God. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself. And look what he says. With the glory which I had with you before the world was. Before the world was created. Before anything was created. The Son was with the Father and had that glory that is only found in the Father. Let's go now forward to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1. The book of Hebrews is all about how great Christ is and how the Jews shouldn't turn away from Christ and go back to the law. The law is not better. The old covenant's passed away. There's a new covenant. And the one who brought in this new covenant is Jesus. Jesus Christ, the Son. So Hebrews 1.1, God, having spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions in many ways, so God spoke through men and, and he spoke through the prophets. But in these last days, he spoke to us in his son. Okay, here's the son. So we have in verse 1, that's God the father. In verse 2, that's the son whom he appointed. The, the father appointed heir, the son of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. He made the worlds. The son was there when God made the worlds. The son made the worlds. Look at verse 3. The Son, that's who is the radiance of His glory. The radiance. If you want to see the Father, Jesus said, you, you'll, you see Him. And the exact representation of His nature. There's no difference in the nature of the Father and the Spirit when it comes to the divinity of Jesus. Yes, He took on a human nature. The Spirit does not have a human nature. The Father does not have a human nature. But His divinity, being the Son of God, He has the same nature that is... God, the same nature, the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. The son of God holds everything up. Everything exists because of him. Who having accomplished cleansing for sin, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. How amazing is that? The son of God comes to the earth. He takes on flesh. And even as he's walking, he's upholding all things. Even as he's on the cross, he's upholding the very atoms that make up the cross. That's amazing. So the Son is said to be God in the Bible. He has all the attributes of God as well. And he does the works of God. Also, the Holy Spirit. Third person of the Trinity is the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3.17. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. The Lord, comma, the Spirit means the Lord is the Spirit and the Spirit is the Lord. Talking here about God. The Spirit is God. Look at Acts 5.3. Acts 5.3. This is clearly associating the Holy Spirit with God. 
Sometimes people think the Holy Spirit is a force, like something out of Star Wars. A force. Not really God, but just kind of God's force as God acts in the world. But look at how Peter describes the Holy Spirit in Acts 5.3. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? If you go all the way to the end of verse 4 now, you have not lied to men, but you, you lied to the Holy Spirit. You lied to God. He's not talking about two separate persons here. It's the same one that he's lied to. He's lied to God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. The Spirit is also said to do the works of God through Scripture. Genesis 1-2. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. So we know that the Father is creating, that the Son is there, He creates, He upholds all things, and that the Spirit is there as well, involved in creation. So that's just describing the Trinity. God reveals this to us. These are not things that you would know. Romans 1 says, you just know that God exists. Everybody knows that. And yet we should thank him and that we should worship him and that we should glorify him. You know God is divine. You know God created you. Everybody knows that. Even the atheist knows that. But Paul never says, no one says that the unbeliever automatically knows there's three persons in the Godhead. That's not something you look out there and see. One time a woman said, yes, a three-leaf clover proves that there is a three persons in the Godhead. I didn't go into how that's partialism, but no, that doesn't show that there's a trinity. You wouldn't know that if you didn't have the Bible. So let's go now to point number two, main point number two, our triune God in defending the trinity. Now realize God doesn't have to defend himself, but he gives us scripture and tells us to use it to defend us. We defend attacks from Satan with Scripture. We defend against the heresies that come into the church with Scripture. And God has told us to do that, and he's given us the Bible to do that. It's the sword of the Spirit. We're to keep off the devil, not just individually, but as a church, as Christians, as a worldwide true church. We have to have a firm belief in the Trinitarian God revealed in the Holy Bible. It's essential to the Christian faith. You can't be a genuine believer and deny the Trinity. And because of this, Satan has set out from the beginning, from the time of Christ, as soon as the church was instituted, Satan has plagued the church since the time of the apostles by his introducing false teaching. I agree with what the theologian Herman Bavink said. Every theological error results from or upon deeper reflection is traceable to a departure in the doctrine of the Trinity. Every heretical error starts from leaving the doctrine of the Trinity, changing it just a little bit, tweaking just a little bit of the nature of who Christ is, separating the Holy Spirit just a little bit from the Godhead. That's where all error starts. And yet, even though Satan's always thrown false teaching against the church, God has given us a sufficient and authoritative word. He's given us verses. He's given us teaching to defend against these heresies. So I want to list these heresies. I meant to, to put them up on the thing, but you'll have to listen closely and try to spell them if you're taking notes. Um, there's some heresies that have plagued the church, some more today than they used to, but they're always hanging around and they come back in new forms. And yet there's always teaching in scripture that will slap that heresy down. And, and just like the real Santa Claus hit a heretic named Arius in a certain council in church history, there was a guy, Nicholas, supposedly 
hit Arius because he was such a heretic. We're going to knock down some of these heresies with Scripture. Not physically. We don't want to physically hit them like supposedly Nicholas did. We'll leave that to the Santa Claus. Ebionism was the very first one. The first heresy during the early church period was Ebionism. Ebionism taught, that's E-B-I-O-N-ism, Ebionism. It taught the way of salvation is by obeying the law. Is that common today? Just be a good enough person? Just obey the law? Yes. And they added to that, though, that Jesus was just a great man, a great prophet. He's endowed with the Spirit. He's exalted as a king, but he's not God. Very early on, these were Judaizers coming into the church saying, yeah, Jesus isn't really God. Go back to the law. Go back to the law. Who holds this today? Muslims hold a a variation of this. They think Jesus was a great prophet, a great man. He wasn't God. The Unitarian Universalist Church, not really a church. They hold this today. Recently, somebody was asking about the Unitarian Church. Unitarian means they don't believe in the Trinity. There's only one God, and they don't even talk about persons. Universalist means they believe everyone's going to be saved. And so you can imagine a church, if you want to use that term loosely, that is going to adopt every liberal view. And now they do uh, worship of Allah and all kinds of things in these buildings. Yet Jesus clearly claimed to be God, as I've shown you. And that's why the Jews wanted to stone him. Why did they want to kill Jesus? Did they want to kill him because he was just a nice guy, a nice prophet? They had lots of prophets. They wanted to kill him because he claimed to be God. We saw the I am verses. Here's Mark 14, 61. Again, the high priest was questioning him and said to Jesus, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? To be the Son of the Blessed One means that you are God. You're the Son of God. And Jesus says, I am. That's a double whammy. Not only says, I am who you just said I am, but I am the, the I am. And then he adds an Old Testament quote from Daniel. It talks about the Son of God. This really inflamed him so much that that's when they said, he said enough, we will send him to the cross. Here's what he quoted and said, you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power, the right hand of God, and coming with the clouds of heaven. He says, not only am I the Son of God, but I'm coming back to judge everyone. I'm coming back to judge you. I'm coming back like that Daniel 7 and Daniel 9 speaks of. The Son of Man is coming to judge. Second heresy is docetism. D-O-C-E-T-ism. Docetism. They said, well, yeah, Christ is fully divine, but he wasn't human. He's not human. He only seemed to be human. He was, he was faking it. He was faking it. He looked like he was human, but he wasn't. Many Muslims hold this today. In fact, it's in the Quran that he appeared to die on the cross. The Quran says it only looks like he died, but he really didn't. They don't believe he's divine, though. They just believe he's, he's human. So it's not exactly like docetism. But John 19.34, that's a good verse for this. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And immediately blood and water came out. This is not a paper cut. He's dying on the cross. They checked to see if he's dead. By sticking a spear up under his rib cage. they hit his heart. So all this water comes out. And all the blood from the heart comes out. He's dead. Proof of it. But then Joseph of Arimathea asked for Jesus' body. And Pilate surprised that Jesus had already died. So he checks with the centurion who was on duty, who was there running the crucifixion. The centurion confirms Jesus is dead. Not to mention all the witnesses that watched the crucifixion. The next one is Arianism. This is a big one. Arianism. 
developed by the man Arius, who I've already mentioned. He was very popular in the fourth century. And the way he got his doctrine, the way he got it out, the way he got so many people to believe it, most of the Roman Empire believed in Arianism for a long time. You know how he did it? Through songs. Through getting the children and the churches to sing these little tunes that he came up with. These cool new songs. And they would say things like, there was a time when Jesus was not. There was a time when Jesus was not. And these kids would sing them in Greek. And the parents would sing them. And the church would sing them. And they would adopt Arianism. And then the emperor became Arian. And all of his government became Arian. And it was very difficult. Until a man named Athanasius came along and fought against it and stood against the whole Roman world. But we don't have time to go into Athanasius, as good as that story is. Well, Arians said that the son is similar to God. They said, well, he's similar. Can't we just all get along? We believe he's similar. He's not the same as God. He's very similar. Can't we just all be friends? John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was God, and the Word was with God. That should help with the Jehovah's Witnesses. Who are the modern-day Arians? This is Jehovah's Witness. They deny that Christ, the Son of God, is the Son of God. They deny that Jesus is God. Mormons, similar. They add a lot of other things, but particularly Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, the problem is if you take them to John 1.1, they've changed it. They got their own translation. They say the word was a God. They added that one little word. You know, certainly you folks at Grace Bible Church study theology and the Bible too much. It doesn't matter if we get our theology just a little wrong, does it? Does it? Can we add just one little letter, like an A? What happens? You become heretical. This is what they they believe. Jehovah's Witness. That Christ is not God. People today, by the way, try to say that songs in churches... Don't worry about what you sing. Don't worry if the the group that came up with the song that you're singing has bad theology. Arius would have loved that idea. No, we ought to sing songs that are true to scripture. And the leaders of the church ought to protect the songs that we sing. So we don't sing bad, heretical groups music. The next one is modalism. Modalism is also alive and well today. Teaches that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are not distinct persons. They're not distinct persons. But different modes or manifestations, different manifestations of God. Here God becomes like an actor who changes costumes in each act. In act one, he's the father and he creates. In act two, he goes back, backstage, he puts on a new costume. God puts on the costume of the son. Now he redeems. In act three, he goes behind the stage and he puts on now a new costume, the Holy Spirit who sanctifies. This is why you should never use the analogy of the Trinity being like water. It's, it's sometimes liquid and sometimes ice and sometimes vapor. That's modalism. And you shouldn't use that analogy. It's a bad one. Modalism is a cl- complete denial of the Trinity because they do not believe there are truly three persons of the Trinity. Do we have modalists today? Are there modalists today? There are modalists today. A whole denomination called the United Pentecostal Church. United Pentecostal Church. You've probably seen those. Have you, if you've ever seen, not just the Pentecostal church, but this is specifically United Pentecostal Church. The most famous of that group is T.D. Jakes. Makes millions of dollars with his books. You walk in Barnes and Noble, you go to the Christian section, you're going to see Joel Osteen, something like Beth Moore, Joyce Meyer, and T.D. Jakes. It's all over the place. 
He is a oneness Pentecostal. He says there's not three persons, but there are only three manifestations of God. In other words, he changes his disguise. Here's the problem. What does the Bible teach? That's what we care about. Who was speaking to Jesus from heaven at his baptism? Who said that? If you can't have two persons, three persons existing at one time in the Godhead, they say, then who's talking to Jesus from heaven? This is my beloved son. Who's talking to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? Same words. Who was Jesus talking to on the cross when he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit? Was he just making that up? No. The next one's tritheism. And this one's not as popular. It's, it's just a, a misunderstanding of the Trinity. People who are unbelievers hear the doctrine of the Trinity and they say, oh, that's tritheism. You believe in three gods, three separate gods who kind of share the same substance. First Corinthians 8, 4 says, therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no God but one. There's only one God. There's not three gods. Another one's partialism. Partialism. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are parts of God. And this is a common mistake Christians make. <clears throat> they say, so there are parts in the Trinity. It's okay if you make a mistake. Learn from it. Grow from it. We all make mistakes when it comes to describing our theology. But God is not three parts that come together to make a whole. And you only really have God when all the three parts come together. There's really not any group that believes this. But they do believe, when, Christ, when unbelievers hear us describe this, they believe we're talking about parts coming together. God is one. We've already looked at verses on that. The last one, adoptionism. Adoptionism teaches that Jesus was born only human and was only later adopted by the Father in a special divine way. That he got adopted at his baptism or at his resurrection. That he somehow earned his elevation to Godhead. Who believes this? Well, the so-called biblical scholar Bart Ehrman makes millions off of this. He even has a book, How Jesus Became God. How Jesus Got Adopted by God. His goal is to try to disprove the Trinity, but we know the Bible is a sure word that cannot be disproven. All right, thirdly, lastly, number three, our triune God in accomplishing salvation. So how does this apply to us? In what way might this apply to us? First of all, we are to worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, be baptized in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But the Trinity, all three persons of the Godhead take part in our salvation. The work of the Trinity is not divided either. The work of the Trinity is unified in saving. Unified in saving his people. The same intention, the same purpose, the same will. Think about creation of the world. The Father created the world. The Son created the world. The Spirit created the world. And we have one world, don't we? One world, all three persons of the Trinity involved in creation. The right way to say it is the world was created by the Father, through the Son, in the Spirit. Now let's take that to our salvation. To our salvation, let's apply this. The same unified purpose and will of our triune God is shown in our salvation. The Father plans and sends the Son. The Son comes and lives and dies and rises again to make atonement for sins. The Spirit renews, regenerates, applies what the Father has planned and the Son has accomplished. They work all at the same purpose. Let's go to Galatians 4 for this. Galatians 4. Also, we'll look at Titus 3. Now, we could spend a whole sermon on this, this third point. We could spend multiple sermons on all of these. I think this one is not taught as much as it needs to be. 
Sometimes we think that the Trinity doesn't work together in salvation. We, we assume that it does. We assume that God does, but we don't really realize how particular, how important this concept is. Galatians 4.4. 4. Now listen to what Paul says here. When the fullness of time came, God, that's the Father, sent his Son, born of a woman, under the law, so that he, the Son, might redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The Father chooses and sins. The Son comes and redeems. The Spirit regenerates and sanctifies. Go to Titus 3. Titus 3, 4. But when the kindness and affection of God our Savior appeared, the Son, he saved us, not by works which we did in righteousness, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. And he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So Father pours out upon us richly through Christ. Again, the Father chooses and sins. The Son comes and redeems. The Spirit regenerates and sanctifies. Now let's go a little further. Let's go to Ephesians 1. I want you to see here how each person of the Trinity is involved in your salvation. Your salvation. Personally to you and personally to all those whom God has saved. Ephesians 1 verse 4. Speaking here of the Father, just as he chose us. Who chose? The Father chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, before God created, before you were ever born, before you ever had a thought, before you ever had a decision, God chose, God elected, is another way you could translate that, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. By predestining, here's how he did that. He made a choice and then he set the path. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. So God chooses, God elects. And he does it according to his will, not according to what we think, not according to our will, not according to what we do, not according to our works. It's God's will. Why did you save me, Lord? He doesn't tell you. You won't know. Maybe when you get to heaven, he'll tell you. He doesn't have to, but we know it was according to his will. You know what our response should be? Not why did you save me and not other people, but Lord, thank you. Because I would have never, ever been able to save myself. And if you hadn't done it, Lord, if you hadn't chosen, just like the Bible says, then I would not be saved. Now skip down to verse 7. So that's the Father. Let's look at 7, the Son. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions according to the riches of His grace. So the Father elects a people. And then who comes here to redeem them? The Son. It's through his blood, it's through his atonement that we have forgiveness of our transgressions. We're not saved just because we're elect. We're saved because God sets his grace on us starting an election, but the son has to come and pay the penalty. We don't get a free election card. We don't get E stamped on the back of our head. Spurgeon said if everybody had an E on their head, he'd just go evangelize to them. But since he doesn't know who's elect, we're supposed to tell everybody about Christ. And that's what Jesus did. He told everybody about himself, but he knew who would believe. Now let's look at verse 13. In him, you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. The Trinity is all in Ephesians 1. Do you see that? The Father elects unto salvation. The Son comes and redeems those who the Father has chosen, and the Spirit seals those whom the Father has chosen and whom the Son has redeemed. There's complete unity. 
There's complete unity here in the Trinity and his intention and God's intention and the will of the triune God. That's what scripture teaches. The Father has chosen to save a particular people. The Spirit will regenerate that same particular people. The Son has atoned for that same particular people. Is there a place where Jesus said this? Go to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. John 6, 37. Here's Jesus talking. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Who's giving? The Father. Who are the ones who will come to Jesus? The ones the Father has given to him. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. So we usually come in in our own thinking at the second part of the verse. We come to Christ. And in the beginning, we don't think about election. Then later we read the Bible and realize, whoa, it's God the Father who gave us to the Son. Praise God. That's humbling. Verse 38, Jesus says, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will. Jesus didn't come down to do what he wanted. He came down to do the Father's will. And in the context here, the will of the Father is that he will redeem those that the Father has given to him. Verse 39, now this is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are perfectly united. Perfectly united in their essence. They're all fully God. There's one God, but they're also united in their acts of salvation. The Trinity is not split up. They don't have an argument. They don't have an argument here. God wants to save a people. Jesus wants to broaden that, shrink that. The Spirit disagrees. This is not a three-part debate. One God, three persons, and they're all working to save a people for God's own possession. The Son doesn't have a different intention than the Father. The Son and the Spirit do not disagree with the Father on their work of saving and sanctifying the elect. That's a blessing. We can think about God's salvation of us and realize he chose us, he sent his son to die for us, and the spirit seals us, sanctifies us, regenerates us, does all the wonderful things that the spirit does. So let's consider these doctrines, these aspects of the Trinity as we worship, even as we hear and and see here in a moment a baptism, because it's done in the name, the singular name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And let's worship God more rightly. As we worship and think about God, let's think about him as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And even praying by the power of the Spirit through what the Son has done to the Father. So let's do that now. Lord, thank you for this teaching in Scripture. It is a difficult doctrine sometimes to understand. We're not used to conceiving of such a thing. But this is how we know it's revealed from you. We would not have even come up with it. It's not something that mankind comes up with. It is something, Lord, that you've revealed in Scripture. Help us to believe it, to love it, and to see how mighty you've worked to save us. How powerful, how gracious, how merciful. The greatest being in the universe. One God, three persons, set out to save me. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.